Sound Science, a show for science curious music lovers every first Monday of every month and I'm your host Sotty Wanze Pierce. Welcome to the show, thank you for tuning in. I think most of us are still on lockdown. I am at home recording from my kitchen so like last month please bear with me with the sound doing my best. Hopefully um, I can deliver a good show for you. So on episode eight for The Love of Music, we delved into the field of music psychology and tried to get to the heart of why music elicits emotion. If you missed that episode, don't worry, you can listen back by clicking through the DubLab archives or you can go to www.soundsciencepodcast.com or you can listen to the podcast version on iTunes. On today's show, we're jumping right back in and this time we're coming at music and emotion from another angle. So many of the explanations for why music arouses emotion starts first with the assumption that music does arouse emotion. But actually, despite this question seeming like a no-brainer for most of us, many philosophers and music theorists have actually argued that music doesn't arouse emotion. My guest on the show this month, Dr. David Bashwinner, argues that the more interesting question is not if, a question that is actually almost impossible to answer either way but how and why it arouses emotion, if indeed it does. So using a toadfish called the plain thin midshipman as a model for musical desire, Dr. Bashwinner will be getting to the fundamentals of music and feelings. We had an incredible interview, which went on towards two hours. I don't want to cut any of that. So what I've decided to do is make a two-parter out of that episode. So this month, you're going to be getting the first part. We're going to be delving into evolution. We're going to be talking about philosophy, ideas around music and emotion, and introducing the midshipman and why it's important and how it creates something that we can compare to music Um, but then you're gonna have to wait until next month for the rest of it which is really juicy so here we go with a a real cliffhanger Um, I'm gonna play some tunes and then I think we're just gonna jump straight into that interview so thanks for tuning in stay tuned more after this You are 
I'm so excited to welcome my guest on the show, Dr. David Bashwinner, Associate Professor of Music Theory at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Bashwinner got his BA in Psychology from Cornell University, his Master's in Music Composition at the University of Illinois, and his PhD in Music Theory at the University of Chicago. His doctoral dissertation, Musical Emotion, Toward a Biological Grounded Theory, explored the biological foundations of emotional responses to music. Dr. Bashwinner, welcome to Sound Science. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you. Really excited about this episode and I'm really excited about sharing your work with our audience. So let's jump right in. So an ongoing debate in music theory is whether music has or had some sort of biological determinism. In other words, whether music has some sort of evolutionary significance by impacting our ability to pass on our genes. Can you explain the two sides of this argument? Yeah, I, it, it's a very good question. So in part, it's related to asking whether or not there are certain functions within the brain that are specific to uh, processing music. And if that's the case, which they believe for the most part, there's at least good reason to think that that is the case in that sometimes someone can have a brain lesion and lose musical faculty, but pretty much no linguistic faculty or anything like that. It at least suggests that there are some parts of the brain that really are potentially more involved in musical processing than other sorts of processing, like for language. So if you assume that that's the case, then you ask, well, wait, how did biological music processors get there? Did we evolve in such a way that our brain developed these special tools for listening to music and being attracted to music and memorizing music? Or did they get there by accident because we are raised in a world where we kind of hear music all day long? You could ask a similar question about language and it's tricky, it's sort of both ways. We clearly have biological processors that allow us to learn language that say chimpanzees don't have. Right? A chimpanzee raised around human language doesn't learn to speak language, no matter its exposure. But humans could learn to speak any given language on the planet. So there are certain ways in which our brains are born with adaptations to learn language, but it doesn't matter what type of language we learn as long as it's a possible language. So with music, it's sort of less obvious that we evolved to listen to music. Music doesn't help us in any way. If you... <laughs> literally need help from another person, you can use your words to say, hey, could you please help me by doing X? Music doesn't really allow you to do that. Music doesn't really get you more food on your table, necessarily. It's not clear that it improves the number of mate choices you have or the number of babies you have. So, uh, and this is the kind of thing that Darwin said. He said music is completely useless. <laughs> I mean, he thought it was interesting, but you know, it's roughly direct quote from Darwin. Steven Pinker has said this as well. Music is completely useless. It doesn't help us do anything. There must be some reason that we have, that we spend so much time listening to music and wanting to listen to music, but you can't make sense of it in a direct evolutionary mm -hmm. sense. So the question when you're trying to figure out why we care about music from the biological perspective, I'm actually gonna read in here a quote from Darwin and a quote from Steven Pinker. Here's a quote from Darwin. He says, as neither the enjoyment nor the capacity of producing musical notes are faculties of the least use to man in reference to his daily habits of life, they must be ranked among the most mysterious with which he is endowed. And then what Darwin does is he says, 
okay, maybe music comes from some vestigial mating call apparatus that we had. So he says, it appears probable that the progenitors of men, either the males or the females or both sexes, before acquiring the power of expressing their mutual love in articulate language, endeavored to charm each other with musical notes and rhythm. And so Darwin assumes that we don't do that anymore, but we have this vestigial or leftover feeling space for music that still exists in humans, but there's no reason for it anymore. So that's the vestigial explanation for what we feel about music and how it relates to our biology and evolution. Steven Pinker is much more recent than Darwin. He's still alive today, wonderful scholar. Uh, in a book called How the Mind Works from 1997, he spent a lot of time talking about all the different modular processors he thinks the mind has, treating the mind as a kind of Swiss army knife. Uh, but he thought that music was clearly not something that the mind evolved for. So here's Pinker on this idea. As far as biological cause and effect are concerned, music is useless. It shows no signs of design for attaining a goal such as long life, grandchildren, or accurate perception and prediction of the world, compared with language, vision, social reasoning, and physical know-how, music could vanish from our species and the rest of our lifestyle would be virtually wow. unchanged. Music appears to be a pure pleasure technology, a cocktail of recreational drugs that we ingest through the ear to stimulate a mass of pleasure circuits all at once. So Pinker got pretty famous for this. I mean, I'm sure he was famous beforehand, but he, he became infamous, at least in like the music evolutionary culture of academia, whatever subculture that it would be called. He, he, he goes on a couple paragraphs later to say, okay, I'm going to draw a comparison between music and cheesecake. It says cheesecake doesn't give you any nutrients. So there's no way we evolved to like cheesecake, but everybody likes cheesecake. <laughs> so why do they like it? We've evolved to get pleasure when we eat foods that give us certain nutrients. So things like meats, things with fats in them, things with sugars like fruits. So in each of those foods, there are like these, you could call them like cues or signals or triggers or something that tells our pleasure apparatus that we're getting some nutrients in this food. Cheesecake doesn't actually have any nutrients, but it manages to artificially synthesize all those things that are triggers for our pleasure sensors. So he ultimately says, music isn't valuable to us. It doesn't do anything. It's not like language in helping us communicate. It's not like, I don't know, something else would increase your number of grandchildren or better your vision. It doesn't do anything. It just has those little cues or sensors or triggers that turn on your pleasure buttons. So music is auditory cheesecake. That's Pinker's argument. And I love to compare the two of those gentlemen scholars with what Ellen Desenayake said. She's a really fascinating scholar. She's been working for quite some time. Her theory is that music is actually quite instrumental in mother-infant communication. So she writes, I suggest that the enjoyment and capacity of producing musical notes are faculties of indispensable use in the daily habits of life of countless women, specifically mothers and their infants, and that it is in the evolution of affiliative interactions between mothers and infants, not male competition or adult courtship, that we can discover the origins of the competencies and sensitivities that gave rise to human music. 
to sort of like summarize this, the answer to the question here, if there is anything biologically specific about our being born ready to listen to music, which it really does seem that we are. As infants, we start dancing to music right away when we first start hearing it. And we also are much more attentive to music than to human speech in the first mm -hmm. couple of months of life. So presumably we are biologically prepared to be sensitive to music. And if that's the case, the question is, is it an accident? That's sort of something Pinker would say. Is it a vestigial? We don't need music anymore, but we used to be music-like animals. That's the Darwin perspective. And then what Desnayaki argues is like, hey, we actually do use music all the time. You might not be aware of how much you use it, but it is still active in our species. And I would say, similar to what Dysonayaki says, I would say just not just for mothers and infants, but basically we are still very much manipulated by music and we use it in ways to manipulate other people. And we might not always be aware of it. And there's ways in which we don't even have access to how music affects us and how we use it to affect other people. But I think it is very deep and it's there and it's still active. I don't know if it was fireworks or gunshots, but the bird is in the air. She just let me know, but they show no fear. It ain't safe from here, but she's still gonna hold on. It ain't safe from here, but she doesn't. That's incredibly interesting. I like the the sort of contrasting viewpoints about the point of music and how it serves us as, as humans. Um, but it also leads me to my second question. I mean, I guess first you have to define what music is to be able to answer this, but then the question of whether music emotions are real. You wrote a paper on the philosophical problem of human musical emotion and whether or not music emotions are real. And for most people, the answer is obviously yes. I think most of our audience tuning in, you know, they listen to Dub Lab because they enjoy music. So intuitively, I think the answer would be yes. The feelings you feel when you listen to music and what you experience in response to music is very real, but it sounds like there's not a definitive answer for whether musical emotion is biologically real. So what motivated you to write the research paper? So that's also a very good question. And, and I realize it's it's difficult to explain this. If, if I asked someone walking by me on the street, hey, what are you listening to right now? And like, does it make you feel, you know, does it make you feel good to listen to it, right? Person would presumably say, uh, yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't be listening to it. It's hard to understand why humans, why anybody would listen to music at all, except for the feelings that it gives you. And and so let's say I say, do you feel emotion? Do you feel emotion as you're listening to this? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I say, what kind of emotion? And maybe the person tells me. So from the philosophical perspective, this gets tricky because a philosopher might say, for instance, well, how do you know that you're actually experiencing that emotion? Maybe you're experiencing that emotion for some other reason and it's not really caused by the music. I don't think this question is super important. I ultimately want to know how it is that music influences the emotions. But there's a critical step prior to that, establishing that music does 
influence the emotions. If, from the philosophical perspective, a philosopher might challenge me and say, hey, how do you know that the music is actually influencing emotions at all? There's two important philosophers that have advanced this perspective that music and the emotions don't really connect to each other in important ways. The older one is Edward Henslick. He was a Viennese music critic, an aesthetician in the middle of the 19th century, so 1854, 1856, 1854. He writes a book called On the Musically Beautiful, and he says, look, I mean, this is not a direct quote, but he says, Look, I'm getting tired of people always writing about how music touches the feelings or something mm -hmm. like that. Sure, maybe, maybe music sometimes makes you feel a certain way, but that doesn't matter. What matters are the pure forms that you contemplate when you're listening to music. So could everybody please forget about the emotions you're getting? And could we just talk about the structure of music, so the structure of the notes, the chords, the cadences. Hans Lick, in writing this, was massively influential. Probably the most influential musical aestheticist of, of all time. Around the time, like, positivism in intellectual circles is on the rise, uh, becomes dominant in all universities, then behaviorism in psychology and related fields. And music academia is really like sort of built upon these positivistic and behaviorist ideas so that you assume that stuff related to feelings you could just never even understand if it exists. So let's ignore right. it. Then you have a philosopher in the 1980s who writes a book called The Corded Shell. And in this book, he says that music doesn't arouse emotions. He kind of takes an opposite perspective from Henslick. He says, okay, music doesn't arouse emotions, but those emotions are still relevant to music. <laughs> it's a very weird yeah. argument, I think. Um, but he spends his whole life like writing book after book, trying to explain how music doesn't arouse any real emotions, but then saying, aha, but emotions are still relevant to music, and then shows you ways in which a certain piece of music's always used is Beethoven's third symphony, second movement, which is like a sort of like a funeral march. He, he argues that that doesn't make you feel sad, but you sort of think about sadness when you're listening to it because of these certain features. Ah. So, and the, there have been a lot of philosophers, like most music philosophy since Peter Kivy, philosophers have either been along the same, on the same side as Kivy, or more frequently against Kivy saying, look, music does probably arouse emotions in these ways. It's all very interesting, but I ultimately think like, that question is distracting. <laughs> it comes down to a definition of what emotion is and, and in a sense what music is. So what Kivy does is says, okay, here's the way emotions are aroused. There's one particular way or one standard way. He says, his example is his uncle Charlie. I have an uncle named Charlie who's always mistreating my Aunt Bella. I get angry at Uncle Charlie and there's a reason. I have a belief about Uncle Charlie's mistreatment of Aunt Bella and that belief induces a sort of feeling in me, but it's only because of the belief. So therefore, he generalizes from this, all emotions basically should be about beliefs that cause these sort of like physiological states that are then perceived by the mind secondarily. So Kivy then says, look, music is no Uncle Charlie. Music can't mistreat anyone. I can't get angry at Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Therefore, I've logically concluded that music doesn't arouse emotions. Okay. So, ultimately, I think this question is distracting. I think it's much more interesting to say, let's not define emotion right now. Kivy at some point says that if music does arouse a feeling in you, it's not real music. You know, if a mother's using music to, char to lull her baby to sleep, that's not real music. So, 
I would step back and say, let's not define emotion, let's not define music, let's take agnostic approaches to these things and say, I don't even know, have to know exactly what emotion is or what music is, but I know that this music-like thing and this seems to arouse these emotion-like responses, and those responses are important because they influence how you go on hearing music. And from there, you can make some real progress on, I think, what's the more interesting question, not the question of whether music arouses emotions, but what are the ways in which this music type mental activity influences your feeling type behaviors. I mean, I completely agree with you. Just going through that, that's fascinating. But the further into it that you try and define music and define emotion, the more lost you become. And there are so many conflicting arguments that it, it, it does ultimately become distracting from what is a more interesting question, which I'm really excited to talk about on this show. So just to make sure that I'm on the page with you. So the question isn't whether music arouses emotion or not. So we're assuming that music does arouse some sort of emotion and focusing on the how and the why. Yes. Just as a quick side note, I did an episode called For the Love of Music about music and emotion and more than mechanisms. So in that episode, we concentrated on how the brain's ability to predict what's coming next in, in music, what causes pleasure, which mm. is a very mechanistic thing. Um, I think some of which you might cover as we go on. And then another argument was, for example, nostalgia. So I can see how those two things both cause emotion, but have different mechanisms. So I guess that would sort of speak to the fact that trying to define that specifically as um, musical emotion does become problematic. Yeah, I mean, that's a really fun. Both, both of those are perfect examples because nostalgia is such a complex emotion. There's a feeling tone there, clearly. You know, like, you know what, you know that you're feeling something when you're feeling nostalgia, but it is neither positive nor negative, right? It's like sort of a complex something in between those two things and it's related to your memory in this complex way. An old memory that you are re-experiencing is, is in a sense really like dusting off the cobwebs in those neural circuits. So you can see how that could be positive, like you might get rewarded for doing that, for keeping mm -hmm. these memories alive, while at the same time there might be some negative stuff. And then, so that's with nostalgia, and then expectation, also very complex because it's, it's temporal. You're expecting something to happen, future in time, based on stuff that has just happened, past in time, maybe based on whether you know that particular piece or not, otherwise based on what you know of pieces generally. But then, you know, if the music is too completely predictable, this is something that I think was talked about in that same episode you're talking about. Music is too predictable. You don't get to do any expecting or you don't get any surprises. So nothing is ever better than expected. So you don't get extra dopamine and you don't have to do a lot of recalculation or recogitation in a sense if something is completely completely predictable. But then if something is not predictable at all, it's very hard to mentally engage. So both of those are related to 
emotion. Um, expectancy is related to emotion in that it's related to the dopamine system, but it's also related to like your sort of anxiety system. Um, and maybe even boredom if something is too, too complex and you can't predict anything. So neither of those, uh, you know, nostalgia is kind of a term for an emotion, but it's not like there's a system in the brain that's called the nostalgia system. We don't know what that is exactly. But those are both, in a sense, much more interesting emotions, music type emotions, nostalgia for music and uh, expectancy in music than you know, something like happiness or, or sadness or fear in music. It's a very good point. Yeah, thank you for expanding on that. Let's shift gears now because I really want to get into your research paper. So as a little twist in the story, the subject of your research is actually an unassuming toadfish called a midshipman fish. For anyone who doesn't know what this fish is, it's a creature that buries itself in sand and mud during the day and only comes out at night. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain what's so special about them in the context of your research and why you use them as a model. Okay, so humans are, are difficult to study, at least in the way that I want to study them. I'm ultimately interested in what it is in a human that leads them when they're when they're hearing a piece of music that they love. What? Why does that make them feel something? I want to insert here um, a little music. I remember hearing that piece in a service that was given on September 11th, uh, 2001, or, or it might have been September 12th, but it was at some point shortly after the bombing of the Twin Towers, and everybody was in a, a very intense emotional state. And uh, that was the first time I ever really appreciated that piece. And uh, it, I just remember, you know, like there was something powerful, I don't know how to, put in words what it is, but wow, I had a really powerful experience. And now every time I listen to it, you know, when I played it just there, like right now, I feel <laughs> still feeling something, right? I, 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 I use it as an intellectual tool, but I cannot help feeling emotion mm -hmm. when I hear it. So let's say I wanted to understand that in a human such as myself. Man, that is complex. Uh, first of all, there's that association. I associate it with the, you know, two days after uh, September 11th. I personally don't think that that has a huge amount of impact on my feeling emotion from that piece but it feels like it opened up an emotional door at that time and maybe intensified the feelings that I was feeling or intensifies the feelings that I get from this piece. But that is not the sole purpose. If they had played Hammer Time by MC Hammer, that ceremony, I don't think I would have the kind of feeling I have for this piece from some other song. I think the feelings that I have are specific to this piece, but they might be more intense because of that particular occasion. So one possible explanation for where the emotions come from is pure association. Another thing is you might say, okay, 
I was raised listening to a lot of music like Samuel Barber. Lots of string music, maybe. Or uh, lots of music that's slow. Or maybe even you might say lots of music in B-flat minor that starts on the five chord and then the, you have a phrase for a while and then you end up on the five chord again. Right? It could be anything like that, but maybe the way I was raised makes me respond to this piece in a different way from some other piece, and then it's entirely a product of my culture. I also don't really believe that to be the case. I think that the way you're raised, again, opens up doors to you being able to perceive something complexly, but it doesn't influence strongly the kinds, the types of feelings that those sounds can give you. It probably just influences the intensity uh, with which you can connect with them. And then you might also say, so let's say I'm in a psychological experiment and I play you that piece, the Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, and I say, is it happy or is it sad? And you have to check a box. The studies do this all the time. First of all, I don't think that question is interesting enough. Like even once you got your, feet, your data back, like who cares? Who cares if it's happy or sad? problem that's just even more important there is that the subject in that experiment is going to be trying to figure out uh -oh, what does the experimenter want? Which box do they want me to check? Am I supposed to think that this mm -hmm. is happy or sad? They might even be saying, is this red or blue? Or is it a big piece or a little piece, right? I mean, it might be saying any of those things and you might be like, I don't know, but I'm going to try to figure out what it is the experimenter wants. So with humans, we want to understand mm -hmm. something basic but it is really hard to do it as humans are so complex. We have culture, we have learning, we have social inferences that we're trying to, you know, please other people with our answers. So it would be ideal if you could just ask these questions with animals. But people often assume, okay, music is unique to humans. There's no animals that make music. Yeah, sure, birds sing, but we wouldn't call that music. Sure, fish sometimes grunt and growl and hum, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But can you really call that music? What I've started to do is really look much more generally at kind of all the sounds that animals make, as vertebrates animals in particular. Almost all vertebrates, except for fish, make sounds, vocal sounds. I think like the giraffe might be the only mammal that doesn't make vocalizations. I, I don't know 100% that that's true, but with fish, there are still, there are at least 150 different fish species that do make sound. And that, you know, like admittedly, that's pretty surprising. There's only a couple fish that have been studied that make, you know, multiple different vocalizations. There's a couple of electric fish that are called the mormorids that have three different vocalizations. And then there's this fish called the midshipman. That's the one that I've spent the most time studying. It's the best researched fish. And it has three different vocalizations. Two of them are what are called agonistic. So, you know, they're used in uh, aggressive interactions. And then one of them is attractive. This one attractive vocalization is called the hum vocalization. And I think what I'll do is play those for you and then I will explain them why it is we could learn something about music and human responses to music by looking at what goes on in this fish.
So here is the sound of the hum of the midshipman fish. And this is the one I'll, I'll mostly be talking about. So that is the fish. It's very, it's very surprising. Uh, it's really a, a cool system. I'll play you a couple of the other sounds and I'll explain how the fish is making the, the, the noise. I want to thank Andrew Bass uh, from Cornell University for giving me these sound samples. He's been a lot of help in this project and his work is really fascinating. So the fish can make that one sound and it does that for over an hour every, every night during the breeding season. And it's doing that to try to attract females to its underwater layer. If it's trying to turn away other males, it might do this grunting sound. Here's that. So apparently all midshipmen fish can make that sound, but only the males, the type one males that can sing they make they do the grunts in those trains that are rhythmic. <clears throat> so the uh, females and the type two males that don't sing can just do individual grunts. <clears throat> so they still function, but they just don't come in repeated trains like that. And then here is a growl. A growl is also um, aggressive territorial defense, and this is what it sounds like. Okay, so the way, how does the fish make the sound and, and is it really okay to call this a vocalization? And is it really okay to call this, you know, make any comparison with music? It, it, at this point, you might think <laughs> I'm crazy for, for thinking this. The fish has a swim bladder. A swim bladder is homologous with the human lung, meaning it's that it's the evolutionarily related structure. The swim bladder in the fish is this air-filled sac and the fish fills it with more air or less air in order to make itself rise or descend in the water height. So there's these two muscles that attach to the swim bladder. So it's just like a big balloon in its belly lung type area. It doesn't have lungs. Um, and these two muscles shake the bladder back and forth at about 100 times a second. And that shaking of it at 100 times a second produces a tone that is 100 hertz, right? Hertz just means 100 times a second. It shakes it at the same rate that, you know, if you were singing that tone, your vocal cords, when you're singing that tone, which is like roughly a low F mm -hmm. at the bottom of the bass clef staff, your vocal cords are just vibrating at a 100 times a second or 90 times a second, something like that. So the fish to produce that hum sound does that. And then to produce the grunt, it's doing that, but just very, very short period of sound. Uh, uh, uh. Right, it's kind of like a very, very, very short hum. 
and the growl is still using that same mechanism, but it's just changing the frequency. So the rate at which the muscles are moving. <laughs> and it's also changing the, the, the volume as well, so the intensity of the muscles. And it turns out that the way that this happens is controlled by these three nuclei at the base of the brainstem. One of them that if you stimulated it directly moves those muscles. That one's controlling the amplitude, like how loud, how strong the musculature responses. There's one that connects to that just higher than that, and that's controlling the 100 times per second rate of that shaking. And then there's a third one that basically turns them on versus off. So I know you're thinking at this point, why are we calling these vocalizations? The swim bladder is totally different from the human larynx. That is definitely true. But those three nuclei are the same. Once you get into the brain, yeah, all the way down at the base of the spinal cord, those nuclei, the nuclei that control vocalizations in humans, control our singing, basically, are homologous with those that control the vocalizations in these fish. So it looks like for any animals that do vocalize, they appear to be controlled by these same basic nuclei, at least at these lower levels. And so if you get into the auditory system as well, you're gonna find the same thing. The ear of the fish uses, at the, at the very most peripheral level, the, the outermost level, it uses a different organ than what we use. Um, there's, they use a saccule, we have a cochlea. But in their saccule, we have a saccule, but we use it for vestibular detection, like our, our balance sense. But inside that saccule are hair cells, and inside our cochlea are hair cells. And with the saccule and the cochlea, so cochlea in mammals, saccule in fish, those hair cells project to nuclei that are probably homologous in the brainstem and then up throughout the midbrain and the, the telencephalon. Most of the nuclei are homologous. So if the problem that I, I set out was saying like, I would like to understand human responses to music. Right now we're just talking about auditory response and even the producing the sound with the voice. But humans are too complex because we learn stuff and we're too complex because we're socially inferencing all the time. But I want to understand some of these basic questions about human vocalization and how we hear human vocalizations. Neurologically, you could say, oh, we can make a comparison. We can get rid of the whole learning thing. We can get rid of the whole social complexity, social motivation thing by examining how these sorts of organs, the auditory system and the vocal system, are used in this fish. That is so incredibly fascinating that these nuclei for, that control vocalization are present in a fish. If that's the case, are we then focusing on music through vocalization as opposed to music in general, which can be produced through a musical instrument? I feel like vocalization is actually much easier to explain than what I ultimately want to explain. I want to explain the response right. of the listener to the sound that she hears. We tend to think of the people who produce music as being mm -hmm. <laughs> doing the complex thing. <laughs> I think there's a pretty good argument for the appreciation of music as being a much more sophisticated and difficult to explain phenomenon. I'm actually going to be really mean and stop there and ask you to come back next month because the interview is indeed not finished. This is just part one of a two-part interview with Dr. David Bashwinner. I hope you enjoyed the first half of 
that interview, I certainly enjoyed speaking with him, which is why we ended up talking for almost two hours. I have to, at this point, give him a huge shout out and thank him for being so generous with his time and sharing with me some of his insights into music and emotion. Um, so some of the research that he has talked about so far um, and we'll be talking about next week isn't published yet so I can't share a link with you to that paper but um, once it is published I will be able to put that up on the website which is www.soundsciencepodcast.com you can go there for show notes a bit more information on um, David Bashwinner link to uh, his website and you can listen back as well there and uh, check out the track listings for the show I haven't really told you what I've been playing I've just been going with it so if you want to know which tracks I played you can go there also the Dub Lab website um, the archives you'll find a track listing there and don't forget that a week after the live show the um, the show is available as a podcast on iTunes thanks to Dublin. Also playing in the background was People's Potential Unlimited Test Pressing by Benedict. You may also have noticed that all the tracks I played today were fish related and I have my wonderful boyfriend to thank for that so shout out to Brandon for helping me to select um, some very fish appropriate songs. Um, and that's all I really have to say apart from this month is the Dub Lab membership drive. So if you're a member, thank you so much for supporting Dub Lab. And if you're not a member, then please consider supporting Dub Lab. All Dub Lab's programming is amazing and free. So we really appreciate your support. Um, or share it, share it with someone who you think um, would be interested in Dub Lab and what it stands for. Anyway, I will stop waffling on and I'll say goodbye now. But I look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, thank you very much to all the listeners. Thank you for your feedback. I got a bit of feedback this week and it really made my day. So yeah, thank you for that. And I will see you next month. <laughs>